welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. We're going to cover chapters 1 and 2. And pretty much we're going to cover two chapters a clip until we reach the end of the series. Uh, the last the last two chapters, 15 and 16, um, we're not going to cover. They're literally just stories. So if you want to read them, you can. But you don't really need me to recap all the stories. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God, we pause uh, this evening. To offer you thanks, we pray that you would meet us here, that you would help us to to see our need for you and the provision you have given to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last time we spent the majority of the, the time talking about the different aspects of salvation. And I spent 95% of the time talking. Today, like I promised... Um, This is going to be a little bit more split, about 50-50. And so I'll probably wrap up around 7-ish. And if you guys don't have any questions, then I guess I'll go home early. But I would uh, would appreciate questions and and discussion and and feedback. So if you have a Bible or you have it on your phone, uh, go ahead and open the the 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is a passage he dives into, especially in, especially in uh, chapter, chapter 1. And we're going to go ahead and read it here. 2 Peter 1, 3-9. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these things is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, from his former sins. And uh, Tripp and Lane, uh, they use this passage to establish many 
uh, many important truths for us today. We're going to kind of kind of walk through those. But the main thing he's going to want us to see here is this idea of the gospel gap in chapter 1. And the, and the passage starts out with telling us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. This is not a, a one-time assertion in the New Testament. If you think about Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 8 through 10, you know, for by grace you have been saved. It's not of works so that no one can boast. And you get to verse 10, it says, uh, so that uh, you can be prepared for every good work. Every good work. Everything you need for life and godliness. Uh, if you go to 2 Timothy uh, verses, or chapter 3, verses 15, 16, 17, uh, we have the same thing. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, correction, and reproof so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? The Bible was written so that you could have everything you need for life and godliness. But he warns us here that we sometimes can become nearsighted and we lack the qualities of such a life. And I think I'd have to, if we're going to be 100% honest, the warning in verse 9, the reality of that in the modern American church is, I think, the norm. There are far too many Christians who, who lack, if we go back here, they lack these qualities. Right? For every reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So we see this, this, this link between you have been cleansed, these things, these qualities are yours, and they are to be increasing, but we get so nearsighted that we forget these things. We forget um, what God has given us, and Peter here lays out for us, some of the things that God has given for us. He's given us promises for the future and cleansing of our sin in the past. The sins you, you have committed, God has cleansed you of those things. He's also given you promises for the future, and that's what Tripp and Lane are, are going to zoom in on here, is this in-between, the future and the past, what he calls uh, that gospel gap. Like We are generally, as uh, Christians, pretty good about talking about past forgiveness, you are forgiven of your sins. If that's not true, nothing else really matters. Right? So we, we rightly focus on that. You, you have been forgiven in, of your past sins. We're also generally pretty good about talking about the future hope. Like we look forward to heaven. We look forward to the promises that one day everything will get better. God has given us those promises for a reason, because sometimes life isn't very fun. Sometimes life is terrible, and you, you look forward uh, to that, that future hope. But, as this passage tells us, there's, there's also hope for the now. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now. But we seem to be stuck with this 
view of Christianity that only talks about the past and the future. And I think part of the reason for that, and it's it's a good reason to an extent, um, part of the reason to that is we are allergic to the idea of works. And we're allergic to the idea of works because the Catholic Church is so so wrongly distorted the gospel with it. All right. So when we talk about the the five alones of the Reformation, you know, you're saved by grace alone. The Catholic Church says, well, yeah, you need grace to be saved. They're not anti-grace. They say you're saved by grace plus the sacraments. It's grace plus, right? And you're saved through faith alone. Well, the Catholic Church says you need faith too. Like if you read their catechism, like baptism is effective to an extent, but the kid still has to have faith at some point. Otherwise, they too say, well, it doesn't really work. But it's also faith plus works. So the, the focus of the reformational faith, the biblical faith, is the idea that your salvation is based on these things alone, in Christ alone. And they would say, well, Christ is a very important, but you also have the saints and you have Mary and you have the church and you have all these other things. So it's not that the Catholic gospel denies the importance of faith grace or Jesus they just want things added to it and in a response to that we uh, Protestants tend to like downplay things in uh, in this stage of life because we don't want to be accused of being works-based people so this gospel this gospel um, gap I think also displays somewhat of a, a, a lack of faith. Because we do, to an extent, find it easier to embrace God's past forgiveness of our sins and his future promises than his help here and now. So I have an example here. You see in Scripture in John 11, Lazarus has died. Right? Jesus comes up to his sisters, and his sisters uh, say, you know, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus looks at them, and, and he says, your brother's going to rise again. And the sisters say, well, yeah, one day. In the future resurrection, I believe that. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, I, I am right now. Right now, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm about to do something. He says, do you believe it? And I think sometimes we're very much like, like Mary and Martha in that situation. We're like, well, Jesus could have or did help back then. He, he can help that now, but can he really help now? And um, Tripp and Lane point to three types of blindness in chapter one that we kind of have that kind of bolsters this, this, this gap, makes us feel comfortable with it. They point out that we are blind to our identity, and that identity is really twofold. Right? Our identity is that we have indwelling sin, and we can be blind to that and think we're just perfect, we're great. Um, very few Christians would actually say that they're sinless. But there are a lot of Christians out there who act as if they are sinless because they're never able to receive correction. Like if any time somebody comes up to you and offers you like good intended correction, not somebody who's coming to just, I hate you and let me tell you how terrible you are, Right? If you can't at least give that a fair hearing and consider it, you're probably blind to the idea that um, you have indwelling sin. Like sometimes, uh, 
Sometimes your enemies actually see you clearer than your friends. They see your flaws. And you need to be willing to accept that. You also need to, uh, we can also be blind to our identity on the other side of the equation, in that we are in Christ. That even though we have sin, that's not the end of the story. And if you miss that part of the equation and you just focus on your indwelling sin, you can become rather uh, hopeless. You think none of this is ever going to change until Jesus comes back. Well, that's, that's not really true either. I think in Reformed churches like ours, we are much more likely to focus on this part than this part. We are much more likely to focus on indwelling sin than the new realities we have in Christ. Um, I had a few people in my life point that out in our preaching, specifically at my old church, that we've, we hit sin so hard, and we did. I think we sometimes did that because we know a lot of churches won't even talk about it. But if, they, if we never get to the part of where God has made provision for us, all we're really doing is just beating up our people every week and then never offering any, any help, which isn't really good either. We can, second, we can be blind to God's uh, current provision. Uh, God has prescribed for us in the New Testament, and the Old, for that matter, ways to grow in holiness. And that's also then the, the process. Provision and process. That God has given us his church provision, scripture, and his body, that is, the church. We are here to bear one another's burdens, and we're blind to the prescribed process. And what we have then with, with um, this gap is it creates a vacuum. And whenever you have a vacuum, nature hates it, so something always fills that in. Right? So we have this gap, right? I know Jesus has forgiven my sins in the past. I know that one day he'll make everything better and I won't sin anymore. What's filling the gap now? Then how do I live my life? If I, if I have that gap, what tends to fill it? Well, whatever you fill that gap with will direct your life. And Lane and Trip will give, give us a bunch of options here, which I have laid out in your notes. These different ways people tend to fill the gap. And we'll just kind of run through these as quick as we as quick as we can. The first one is formalism. Formalism. That as long as you keep up the appearance that everything is good, then you're doing a good job. And in this, uh, Christianity is often reduced to participation in churchy things. Like you can come to church every time the lights are on and your life can still be a mess. Like you can show up to church on Sunday morning and smile and be like, look at how well behaved our family is. We're so happy when you're yelling at your whole family right up until you pull in the parking lot and then right after you get out of the parking lot. Like this, this type of formalism and hypocrisy is what often gives Christianity a bad name and makes it a stench onto children who grow up in such a home. They're like, if this is Christianity, I want nothing, nothing to do with that. Another thing that can fill in the gap is, is legalism. We can turn the faith only into a list of do's and don'ts. All right, that we earn God's favor through obedience. And you'll note um, with a lot of these, just like every sin, it's always built on something that's kind of true. Right? There are a lot of do's and don'ts in the Bible. Right? So if 
you respond to this with like, well, I can do whatever I want. Well, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it too. But the legalism is easy to keep on the outside, but it ignores the heart of the problem. This is what Jesus spent so much time critiquing in the Pharisees. So if you understand the history of Israel well, right? so you have God brings them into the land and pretty much immediately in the land they start sinning, right? With the, with this, with, um, oh, what's his name? At, at the Battle of AI. I just spelled that word, AI. AI, yeah. Who was the guy who stole everything and then he got... Achan, that's his name, it escapes me. Like Literally, the, the story of, of Israel is just one long story of them not keeping the rules of God. Well, after the exile, they come back in, and when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're back in the land, you, what you're, you're seeing them doing, and even like there are, there are men who had married foreign wives, and they make them divorce their wives at that point, because they're like, you're breaking God's covenant, and we read that, and like, that sounds really, really harsh. And what you're seeing in, in Ezra and Nehemiah is the, is the roots of what becomes the, the Pharisees, like in the elder tradition. It's like, we got kicked out of the land, and God abandoned us for our sin because we wouldn't keep the covenant. So what are we going to do now? We are going to add all of these rules to make sure we don't break the covenant. Make sure we don't break the Sabbath. We now have 39 different categories of work that aren't allowed on the Sabbath. That's a real number. The elder tradition had 39 different categories of work that were not allowed on the Sabbath. And Jesus shows up and starts breaking those 39 categories on the Sabbath. He's like, you don't get it. Right? This is this is the legalism. Like you can do everything right on the outside, and your heart can be far from God. That's what that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You're whitewashed tombs. Like you look good on the outside, you're dead on the inside. Legalism fills the gap. You can feel real holy with it, but it doesn't really work. Another thing that can fill that gap is this mysticism. You turn the the faith into um, one mountaintop experience uh, uh, to another. It is the faith then becomes reduced to how we feel, right? Uh, this you normally see in very charismatic circles if you, uh, that have the uh, spiritual highs and, and uh, gatherings and prayer nights and camps and retreats. I can't tell you how many, when you engage with people who are in that movement, their faith really is this. Go up here and then they go like, way down here because... I don't feel it anymore. And then they go way back up into the next experience. With our circles, we see this a lot with kids when we send them to youth camp. And they get, they're, they're in this spiritual, hyper-spiritual environment for a week. And they, they come back like they're on fire for God. And then they get back to real life. And it's like, well, it's, real life's not like camp. Like camp can be beneficial. But if you talk to people who work at camp and who run camps, and, and I have, they recognize this as a problem. Right? So that... This mystic or super spiritual experience, it's not that it's wrong, but it's also not the heart of, of the faith. The faith certainly engages our emotions, but it, it can't be ruled by those things. Another thing that they point out that can fill the gaps is a type of activism. Right? Christianity is reduced to being right and active on the right issues. We saw this a lot in the, in the summer of 2020. How many times did I see people say, if I didn't have the right thing about Black Lives Matters in my social media feed or black out my picture, then you weren't a good Christian. And if I didn't, and 
this is something I'm acutely aware of because we talk about issues. I talk about issues to you guys all the time. I think it's important to think and speak Christianly on all of these issues, but that's not the sum total of the faith. There are people who are very right on issues who don't have the faith. Like People like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, if you want to talk about getting issues right, uh, understanding the culture very well, you're going to be tough, tough to find anybody who's, who's doing better work than they are. They don't have the faith. They're living off an inherited Christian tradition, and this is why they get a lot of things right, but they're not Christians. So you can be right on these issues, and it's not actually going to make much of a much of a difference. Another thing that comes in, uh, they point out, is biblicism. Right? One could be a theological expert, pastor, or worldview guy, and not have a transformative faith. How many big-name pastors and ministry leaders fall all the time? You think about people like Ravi Zacharias, eloquent, defender of the faith, women all over the world. And uh, my own experience in church life, like you can meet a lot of guys who are theological experts, who are grade A jerks. I think you're missing something. You're missing something there. So in Biblicism, the faith is reduced to mastering the content of the faith only uh, in the head. Next one he puts out, or they put out, is psychologism. Psychologyism. Right? Christianity is self-help. Why does Christianity exist? It is there to make me feel better. Christ becomes my counselor, helps me with my problems, my therapist, and the faith then becomes reduced to emotional healing. We all have been traumatized and the gospel will heal, heal you from your trauma. And there is, again, an extent to which this is true. Like if you're really grappling with the gospel, it's going to transform even this. But they've done whole studies on this for decades now about how Christianity has been turned into in a lot of churches what they call moral therapeutic deism. There is a God, deism. There's a God out there, but he's not really that personally involved in my life. He teaches me some morality, moral, and therapeutic. He's there to make me feel good about myself. God's my cosmic cheerleader. Well, that's not much of a God. Next is socialism. Not the political theory, but that the church becomes all about community. It's a social club. The church is certainly a community. If you don't have community within your church... You're either not putting in the effort you should, or the, the, the church isn't really much of a church. But it's the church is certainly more than that. One of the issues, again, I faced somewhat regularly in my old church is there was a church that had been around for over a century. There are people who were there for third, fourth, fifth generation. And they didn't show any fruit of being Christians at all, but this was their church. And it was their community. And they came there because it was a status thing and it's something their family did. Well, that's not really what the church is for. And uh, finally, um, uh, that was the last one. But these are all appealing because they appeal to some truth. Um, but we end up exchanging what are often results of the gospel for the gospel. Right? So the... You take the gospel and it brings transformation. We want the transformation without the gospel. And what we end up doing is making the main problem anything but the sin in our hearts. So what needs to change? 
What needs to change? This is the, the same kind of list he gives in the next chapter. We, we have the gap, and we, then we say, okay, we've identified the problem. We have this gap in our lives. But then when you identify a problem in your life, what is the things that actually need to change for the problem to get better? And there are a lot of false options here as well. The first one is the main one. This is the one you see uh, again and again. When you ask people, well, what needs to change for you to deal with this problem? You'll probably get some variation of my circumstances need to change. I'm so angry all the time. What needs to change? Well, these people need to stop making me angry. Okay. You're not going to ever live in a world where there won't be somebody who's annoying. There won't be somebody who will be taxing on you. Like if you're going to raise kids, like life is not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. But this is probably the most common false answer. If blank was different, then things would be better. If I just had fill in the blank, life would be better. If blank didn't happen all the time, I wouldn't have sinned. <laughs> you go to apologize to your spouse. I'm like, I'm really sorry I said that, but I only said it because you did this. There may be some truth to that, like you're responding to something, but it still doesn't make it better. Jesus tells us that we respond out of the abundance of our heart. Your circumstances can change and things won't get any any better. And so what we are doing here is we're shifting the blame, just like Adam did in the garden. Like Adam and Eve literally lived in a perfect environment and they sinned. Right? You're not ever going to find that perfect environment in this life when you're still called to not sin. So changing your circumstances probably won't fix the problem. And again, there may be certain circumstances in your life that you need to change. If you struggle with getting drunk, and you have a bunch of friends who go out drinking every night, probably shouldn't go to that circumstance. Right? But that's not going to change your heart. You still might swing by the liquor store on the way home and get drunk by yourself. Right? So, yeah, and there's always a sliver. There's always a sliver there. What needs to change? My behavior. Your behavior does need to change. But external actions by themselves aren't enough. We act from what is inside of us. So we have to know why we do the things that we do. The behavior change comes from something deeper than changing your behavior. It's more than just here's, here's 12 steps to changing your life. It's got to be an inside-out kind of change. Well, maybe you need to just change your thinking. And this is the one the world sells to us a lot, that... All of our societal ills can be fixed with better education. Just throw more billions of dollars at public education. And it'll make everything better. How's that working? Making everything worse. You have uh, you go to the bookstore, if such things still exist, you find whole sections full of pop psychology books about positive thinking and self-help. And it's like, well, thinking's a part of the equation, but it's not, it's not all of it. What I need to change? Well, maybe I need to have better self-concept or a better self-esteem. If I just believed in myself a little bit more, then things would get better. Just take more responsibility. But the Bible holds two truths about us in tension. Right? The, the Christian view of the, of the human self is, is this. You are worthwhile because you are made in God's image. That gives you value, but you're also sinful. 
And we, we are holding those two things in tension. One other thing that we might be tempted to say, and this is just trust Jesus a little more. Sunday school answer. It's true, but it, it depends on what you mean by Jesus. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about that. He, he said he started to cringe whenever he heard the word or the name Jesus because he knew there was, that most people didn't mean what he meant when he used the words. So he'd be like, well, which Jesus are you talking about? Like if you approach Jesus primarily as your, your therapist, or like a lot of the Christian things you would see on, on like TBN or that you would hear on the popular Christian radio stations, right? that's not the Jesus of the Bible. There's not a whole lot of help there. So then Lane and Tripp kind of lay out some real hope for us in Colossians 2, 9 through 15. We'll read this quick because I'm already late. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Run through this real quick. We read here about our new realities. Christ has the fullness of deity in him, verse 9. And then it moves to this tremendous statement in verse 10. Jesus Christ has the fullness of deity in him, and you are filled in him. You are being filled by the one who has the fullness of deity in him. Therefore, we have put off the body of flesh. We are now alive in Christ because he has paid for our sins and he has triumphed over the powers of evil for us. Verse 15. In short, Christ has cleansed us and he's brought us a newness of life for now. And that means that change is possible. One of the reasons we get stuck in that gospel gap so much is we don't think people can change. The book is titled How People Change for a Reason because a lot of us function under this, this assumption that we can't change now, we can only change when Christ comes back. Like people can change. The gospel is more powerful than your sin. God has prescribed certain ways to deal with your sin. We just often don't make use of those things. And so the heart of the matter, to no one's surprise here, is the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the decision-making center of us. The heart isn't what we often mean today, just where your feelings are. When the Bible says heart, it's including your thinking, your feeling, and your choosing. And so the heart of the matter really is your heart. The Bible tells us that we need new hearts, we need new desires, and then and only then will our external actions change. Christ came to not primarily change your external actions, but to change your heart. Then those actions will change. And we can't just put the cart before the horse. 
And so as some people have laid this out for us, we, we're thinking about these, these categories and how we think, how we choose, how we, who we live. Biblically speaking, theologically speaking, the mind, your, your mind identifies what it believes is true. Okay. So my mind will identify that I, that I think pizza is good. And then my heart will desire what my mind believes to be true. Now I want a piece of pizza. I'm getting hungry. And then the will seeks out what the heart desires. So your mind defines what it thinks is true. Your heart desires what your mind tells you is true. And then your will seeks what your heart desires. And then what the will continually seeks becomes your habits and your character. Like the more you go down a certain path in your life, the easier it is every time to go down it. Like you've, you've trained your mind, like they're doing more and more studies on this, that you can literally, by teaching yourself to think new ways, you literally re-hardwire your own brain. Your own brain chemistry and synapses and all of that. It's very close to what the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The cycle itself is what needs to be changed. Not our circumstances, not our self-esteem, not just our behavior. It's an inside-out uh, type of change. And so thus the key to the beginning is to understanding our hearts. And it is the C, what lies we believe, to understand why we desire what we do. And to this, this is something I found key. And to know that sin never gives you what it promises. You can think about what we've been going through in the, in the book of Proverbs. Uh, you think about the, the, the picture of the forbidden woman. All right, so your mind looks at the forbidden woman. You believe that that will be satisfying. That will be a good time. And so you're, you're desiring it because your mind is telling you, oh yeah, that, that'll be worth it. Right? And so you get you get what you want, and then the book of Proverbs tells you actually you're going to end up dead. Sin says you'll get this. You do it, there's an immediate pleasure and gratification, but the fallout is always worse. The sin's always lying to you, in other words. It gives you a promise, but then it doesn't actually fulfill that promise. And these things happen in your brain, in your heart, in your brain, really, really quickly. Like, um, we'll dive into this more later, but... Like somebody does something offensive to you and you lash out in anger, you feel justified in the moment and then eventually you feel guilty. And the harder your heart is, the more you'll push that guilt down and try to explain it away. Like a good test to know that you've done something wrong is the more people you have to go to to explain it to them, hoping that they'll tell you what, it did, what you did was right. Because your conscience is trying to tell you something. And you want to assuage that guilt you're feeling. Like, so I did this, 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 and this. What do you think? The person's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. And you go ask the next person. Until you find somebody who says, yeah, you were just fine. It was perfect. The more you feel the need to be justified in an action, maybe an alarming sign or alarm bells ringing to you that you probably shouldn't have done that, that thing. So in all of this, can't lose the heart of the matter. Um, heart change must come from the Father through the Son, and by the Spirit. This is part and parcel 
of the eternal plan of the Father, achieved through the work of the Son, and applied to us by the Spirit. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness now. Your past sins have been forgiven. Your future hope is still there. And you have been given everything you need for life and godliness now. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, He sustains it, and He is reconciling it all to Himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.